Lord, this morning we do, as has already been prayed, uh, desire that you be glorified, lifted up, worshipped in our time as we spend together, that you would be the focus and that you would, in fact, open our eyes to your word, illumine us, enable us to understand what you are communicating in these passages, some of them difficult, enable us to be able to also draw from the passages how you would have us respond and that we may respond rightly and willingly. So we desire today that all things be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We desire that uh, your word would have an impact on us. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, what I'd like to do is read from a passage that I've mentioned a few times that parallels one that we've looked at before. And we looked at that one because Paul quotes from uh, the context of that Deuteronomy 28 through 30 passage. He quotes out of chapter 30. And I've said many times that God has laid out even before Israel was a nation, there he lays out their entire history. And that other passage, you might turn to uh, Leviticus 26. It parallels the passages that we looked at, Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Now, we didn't look at everything, but I kind of highlighted and gave you an overview of Israel's history And if you think in terms of the context of both Deuteronomy and uh, a different context of Leviticus 26, God foretells, I guess you could say, foretells what the outcome of Israel will be, the ultimate outcome. And I think these are kind of foundational to the nation of Israel in terms of not only their past history, but Moses' lays out, or the Lord does through Moses, lays out even future from the church age. Now, the church age isn't obviously mentioned. So if you turn to Deuteronomy, or I mean Leviticus 26, in the early part of the passage, we have the parallel with what Deuteronomy 28 gives us. Moses lays out if Israel obeys and is faithful to the Lord, he will bless. And he lists many blessings, not only in Deuteronomy, but in chapter 26 as well. And he also warns if they are disobedient, much like the bulk of Deuteronomy 28. Now keep in mind, Leviticus is written to the generation that left Egypt in the wilderness. I put Leviticus in the time frame of uh, Sinai. I think it was written and the content was partially what God uh, gave at Sinai. So it's to that first generation. So this is the beginning of the 40-year wanderings. And in that, he lays out their entire future in very specific, although broadly, very specific terms, blessings and or cursings. Now, Deuteronomy stresses the cursing aspects. So verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes 
And if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, that's the Mosaic covenant that God implemented at Sinai. Verse 16, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. Then he goes on with a long list of other things that parallels what we looked at in Deuteronomy 28. Now, keep in mind, Deuteronomy is written to the next generation, the second generation at the end of the wilderness. Also, before Israel is a nation, Moses lays out kind of this outline of history. But also, notice in uh, Leviticus 26, skip down to verse 31, and I will lay waste your cities, cities as well and will make your sanctuary desolate, the temple desolate. Now that was fulfilled at least a couple of times. That's the Babylonian captivity, but we've been talking about 70 AD. I think that's part of what God is revealing here. So their sanctuary desolate, and I will, I will not smell your soothing aromas. Somewhat of a vague allusion to the destruction of the temple. 32, and I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled over it. Now, after Israel was scattered in 70 AD, the land did in fact become desolate and remained that way and until 1948 when they returned. Then verse 33, very specific notice. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And he lays out some more, beginning in verse 34. I'll I'll stop the reading there. It also lays out, beginning in verse 40, promises of restoration. That's Romans chapter 11. So that goes beyond even the, the past. And before that, God lays out uh, basically what's exp- what they've experienced in their history, and I think included in that would be the 70 AD occasion that we've been talking about in Romans chapter 10. So we're looking at Israel, and they've had a persistent pattern that Paul is bringing out, a pattern of disbelief, and the verses we're going to focus on are verses 15, we won't get to 21, in chapter 10. So obviously, we're talking about Romans, and in Romans, there was a Jewish contingent in the city of Rome. Some of them had believed, and the book of Romans is addressed to the believers and also the Gentiles, but the focus of Romans 9 through 11 is the Jewish portion of the many churches there. And we've talked about God vindicating his righteousness in terms of Israel, giving their past sovereign election, Israel chosen, and he traces all the way back to Abraham and the children of Israel, and even within the family of Abraham, not every descendant of Abraham is part of the elect nation or chosen nation. 
but God sovereignly has chosen. So what he's saying, God has sovereignly laid out even the events relating to the Gentiles in the first century. I think that's kind of what underlies all of that. In verse 24, he introduces the Gentiles. But because they have rejected their Messiah, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10, and we're getting close to the end there, he lays out the rejection and Israel's discipline in the present time. Then if you look at the beginning of verse 11, you see that that rejection is not total. It's not permanent, but in fact, it points to a restoration where all Israel shall be saved. Now, that's a national salvation, a corporate salvation that uh, obviously is preceded with many individual commitments to the Messiah that they missed in the first century. And everything in chapter 11 that he's predicting is even future from uh, even our day today. So that's kind of an outline of chapters 9 through 11. Context, the reason he has to introduce these things is because Israel, as God's chosen people, uh, Paul is introducing a new message based on uh, Jesus Christ, the one that was crucified And to the Jews that rejected him, this seems inconsistent with the Old Testament, inconsistent with their religion, you might even say. So God has to take them to Scripture to show, yes, they're a chosen people, but the gospel is now going out to Gentiles because essentially they rejected their Messiah. And not only that, but this was predicted way back, even all the way back in Deuteronomy itself. So he has to explain why God is moving in a broader sense to bring people to himself and setting Israel aside. And chapter 10 essentially gives two major reasons. Even though righteousness has been available throughout the history of Israel, and particularly it's available in the first century. In outline form, we've been looking, obviously, at the vindication of God's righteousness, 9 through 11. We spent some time in chapter 9 through verse 29, where the look is in the past, God's sovereign election of Israel. And if God is sovereign in choosing Israel, he is also sovereign in terms of any selection, even the despised Gentiles. So that's why he reviews their sovereign election to lay the foundation for a choosing of a a different group of people that actually was despised. We've been in the uh, portion beginning in chapter 930 through the end of chapter 10 that deals with Israel's present national rejection. And he's explaining why Israel is set aside after their rejection of the Messiah and God moving to focus more on Gentiles. We divided uh, this into, well, first reason that they're set aside. They perverted the means by attaining righteousness, setting up their own self-righteous system that God obviously is not obligated to honor because he has his own means by which uh, righteousness is attained. So we talked about that. And the second major reason they are rejected is because of their persistent unbelief. 
and that's 10, 14 through 21, and we're in the middle of that part. Last time we looked at 14 and 15, the, the potential of preaching, and the reason for that is to show that this righteousness, this relationship with God is available, and that Israel has heard the message. It has been thoroughly preached. And I think underlying this, Paul is alluding, not specifically laying it out, but alluding to what has happened in the first century that is recorded in the book of Acts. The church first was established by those that were sent, those that were called, and Israel was uh, given the message. In other words, the message was preached. And not only that, but they heard the message And the issue basically lies in their court. How did they respond? Well, they were persistent in their disbelief. The preaching was there, the message was there, but uh, they did not believe it, and therefore they did not call on the name of the Lord. So that's verses 14 and 15. So we had the questions on preaching, kind of outlining the means by which God brings people into a saving relationship. This is the human perspective. Remember, throughout chapter 10, the emphasis is human responsibility. Chapter 9 through verse 29, the emphasis is God's sovereign plan. So there's the need just as much as God sovereignly has orchestrated in the past and is orchestrating today and will fulfill everything in the future part of that plan, God uses means to accomplish his sovereign plan. And the means is by delivering a message or the potential of preaching. So he goes through the sequence of questions. And then we have the biblical preacher, which we, that's essentially where we left off last time. I alluded to verse 16, but the last part of uh, verse 15 tells us that the message was delivered, and this was even this, in some ways, was at least alluded to in the Old Testament, or you might even say predicted. How will they preach unless they are sent, and the apostles are called and and sent with a message? That's what the word apostle means. And in somewhat of a fulfillment, you might say, or at least in like manner, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Last time I I mentioned that feet are not that attractive. And if you look up the record of the Apostle Paul, these obviously are not his, but they probably looked something like this without the tattoo. Paul would not have had one because of the prohibition in the in the law, but blistered, beat up, walking thousands of miles, as was the custom in that day. So a messenger that had come, and I'll give you the background of that in a moment. The messenger obviously would have beat up feet, dirty feet. So the emphasis in a interesting way, maybe to call attention to it, the, uh, the emphasis is not so much on the feet, but on the, the message that the feet deliver. And in a way, because of the beauty of the message and the importance of the message, 
the uh, writer of Isaiah tells us that the feet of those that bring the message are beautiful. So the feet of those who bring good news of good things. There's two words there, both of them emphasizing the, the importance and the goodness of the news. The, the phrase good news, actually the whole phrase bring good news is one word in the Greek text. The idea of bringing the gospel or preaching the gospel or delivering the gospel that's captured in the, the phrase good news. So the gospel, the essence of it, it's good news. And we know it's good news because it's the means by which God brings a lost people or a lost individual into a relationship, delivering him from the bad news, which is eternal separation from God. So it's good news of good things. That's kind of the, the focus there. Now, where does this come out of, and what is the significance of it? I think what Isaiah is doing, and this is the passage that that uh, Paul is quoting out of, the passage that we have starts, you might say, in uh, Isaiah. You might turn to Isaiah 52. In this passage, and I, I mentioned last time, remember the, the broader context of Isaiah you have to look at Isaiah 52 and 53 together, and we'll talk a little bit more about Isaiah 53, the very familiar passage that actually describes the crucifixion. The preceding context, Isaiah 52, you actually want to start in verse 7. Would somebody care to, to start reading there? And I want you to notice a few things in the passage. And while you're looking that up, uh, who wants to do that? Someone want to volunteer there? Keep now. Keep your fingers in in both places. Uh, Romans chapter ten, and if most of you or all of you want to turn to Isaiah fifty two, because we're going to look at a couple of passages there. Denise has Isaiah fifty two. Who does Denise? Okay. The background here: Isaiah is predicting that news will come from Babylon. And this is good news, and the news that'll come. Remember, Isaiah is writing before the captivity, and he's predicting things leading up to the destruction of the nation of Israel. If is Israel does not repent of its idolatry, if it does not return to the Lord, then he lays out what's going to happen to them. And in Isaiah 52, he's predicting some good things that are going to happen in the future, that there's going to come news from Babylon, and the the news is that the exile and the captivity are ending, and that's extremely good news for a Jew. That means they can return to the land. That means they can reestablish themselves. That means that now, because of the other prophecies, they can prepare for the Messiah. They can prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So, Denise, why don't you start reading in verse 7, and then I'll make some comments and have you go on. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay, what is what have we talked about concerning salvation? You remember what we've talked about? This is an example of when you look at that word, don't immediately think, 
oh, deliverance from hell or salvation in terms of eternal life. If it's the context of news from Babylon, what do you think is the idea here? It may include that relationship, but remember he's writing to Israelites who should already have that relationship. So it's deliverance from Babylon. It's deliverance from captivity. It's deliverance from all of the physical problems that the nation of Israel had in terms of the captivity. And it may include, obviously, spiritual aspects, but don't automatically think he's talking about simply that initial trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in this case, trust in God or trust in the Messiah. But notice this is the passage that uh, Paul quotes. He modifies it a little bit, perhaps because of the version that he's reading out of, probably out of the Septuagint. But the, the, the good news and the feet that bring them. Now read on, read verse 8. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Okay, a restoration of Zion. This is a physical restoration of Zion. In other words, the the exile not only has it will end, but people will return and rebuild Jerusalem. The Babylonians destroyed it. Read verse nine and ten. Break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Okay, again, salvation, but in terms of the restoration in this place, the waste places of Jerusalem, the redemption of Jerusalem, in other words, a reestablishing of the nation of Israel in the land, focused in their former capital, the city of Jerusalem, and this salvation. That's the context. So that's good news, and that will be, from Isaiah's perspective, the future release from captivity. So we have this coming of salvation and it's broad. It's salvation for all, all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. He's alluding to this broader aspect of this gospel message that'll come once the Messiah arrives. Who's that? Jim. Well, you just said what I was hoping was that I wasn't anticipating you were going to point that out. That's what I was noticing. Oh, okay. All, this, this broader yeah. salvation? That all will see it. Okay. The, the purpose of God. Okay. And and when he says that, what he I think what he's saying is it's going to be broadcast in such a way that everyone will have opportunity to hear. That doesn't mean everyone will, in fact, respond to that message. In fact, never is that the case. In fact, there's always rejection. But this is the context of the bringing of the good news, preparing for Messiah, preparing for this salvation that the Messiah is going to bring, and it's going to be extended to all. This is amazing news. This is incredible news. Fantastic. Awesome. 
unbelievable. And in fact, Israel is in fact not going to believe it. So verse 16, that's 15, that springs into verse 16, this very Uh, optimistic. Go ahead. Let me ask you a question real quick before you go on to 16. So uh, did I understand you to say now these are saved people? Is that right? In terms of... Well, I think they're treated as redeemed people. That doesn't mean that every single Jew throughout, obviously throughout their history, many of them are not, but it's addressed to them as a corporately saved people that have rebelled against their God and have gone into idolatry, very unfaithful. I don't know if that clarifies what you asked. I'm not saying that every single individual in Israel had eternal life. I would say the bulk of them did not, but there were probably a, a small, in fact, we're going to talk about a remnant and the meaning of a remnant in chapter 11. We touched on well, it. That, actually, that's what brought, that's what brings that to mind. And I don't want to get ahead of you on this, but uh, you know that he talks about those who are cut off from the vine can be uh, rejoined. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Rejoined. And you think of anyone that's actually attached to the vine in the first place as being a re- redeemed person. And uh, uh, so I'll be interested to see, you know, what you have to say about that. I, I've been wondering about that. Yeah. I think when you think of Israel, you think of them corporately and the viewpoint that God views them. They're still the people of God, but we kind of mix up this idea of salvation and all the connotations of that initial trust, and we superimpose it on some of these passages, like the ones that we just looked at in Isaiah, and we kind of get everything fuzzy, and it's not very clear. God views Israel as his people that are under discipline. It'd be like the father, he doesn't abandon the son. The son doesn't lose his membership in the family but he's put in the corner, he's under discipline until there is repentance or until the father deems it uh, time to bring the child out. That doesn't mean the child loses the salvation, just like Israel, that doesn't mean that Israel is totally cast out as the people of God or that all of the issues relating to their choosing are lost. Now, when you speak in terms of individuals, I think many of them, many Jewish people will not have eternal life or have not had eternal life in the past. And that's that's true throughout their history. In fact, I think there's 2000 years of the majority of the people that have lived and died, lived and died through those 2000 years that never came into a saving relationship. But corporately, God viewed them in terms of this body or this group, and that's the point of the early part of chapter 9 that we looked at. Not all that are of Abraham are true Israelites, and that's true in terms of today. That's true in terms of the future as well. That's why we stress this national aspect and why it keeps coming up over and over. I don't know. Is that helpful, Jim? I think so. Okay but you're not sure. So we'll have to talk some more. Okay. So the great potential of the preaching and the availability of the gospel supported by 
a prophecy from Isaiah's perspective that was actually partially fulfilled when the children of Israel actually were taken into exile and then they were eventually released. Paul, looking back, using that passage and that context in terms of emphasizing the good news, and uh, you would expect that, oh, the good news was received, but in verse 16, this is the whole point of the passage that we're looking at in chapter 10, and the reason why they are under discipline and set aside. Israel is in the corner, inside the house of God, in the corner, because, however, they did not all, and notice the all there, heed the good news. In other words, that good news ultimately concerning the gospel. Now he's bringing us back to the first century, the good news that Messiah died for the sins of the world, the good news that uh, eternal life is available, the good news that if Israel as a corporate entity would in fact turn to the Messiah, they would be delivered from uh, the Roman Empire. The good news that if Israel corporately received their Messiah, they would in fact begin the process of establishing, or the Messiah would begin the process of establishing the kingdom. But however, they did not heed that good news where all of these good things would come about. The fulfillment of that last part of Leviticus 26 the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 30 that we looked at, that great restoration. And remember, we've said over and over, the apostles in the first century, and Paul specifically, I think he anticipated that the church age would not be that long. It would be a short period of time. Messiah would return, and uh, the kingdom would be established. But before that could happen, Israel would have to turn and call upon the name of the Lord. So the sad thing is Israel, and this is kind of a summary of their history, they did not all heed the good news. So we saw the Isaiah 52, and we went beyond verse 7 to verse 10 to kind of bring out the essence of the passage to get the full context. And now he's still in the same context. So Paul writing to a Jewish audience, a believing audience, stays in the same passage, and now he gets to Isaiah 53. And you know what that passage introduces. The first verse is, even though it's clear, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 is clear, and the news has been delivered, and the, the, uh, the deliverer of the good news, his feet are beautiful, but unfortunately, what is Isaiah 53.1? Who has believed our message? So he basically takes the, the first part of that. And remember beginning, essentially, in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, that whole unit all the way to the end of 53, the Messiah is rejected. That's the context. And in the middle of that uh, we have the quotation that Paul quotes. You got that? So that's the context. Now, when it says, they did not all heed the good news, 
in the Greek text, if you look at it carefully, we have two words that Paul seems to be playing on in that little uh, phrase there. The word heed is hupakuo, hupakuo, the Greek word there. Now, you've heard me say on many occasions that etymology, be very, very careful in deriving meaning from etymology because etymology oftentimes doesn't uh, give you the meaning of words, even though some people stress that. Kind of an example in English, you put the two words pine and the other word apple together. That doesn't mean that what you're eating is the fruit that comes from a pine tree that bears apples. So, I mean, there's no relationship there. Pineapple, it totally unrelated. But if you were to do etymology on the two and try to put the two together, that's sometimes what is done with Greek words. So you have to be careful. But this one seems to fit. In fact, somebody tell me, what is the main way that you determine meaning of words? It's not by the, by the etymology of a word, but by what? Context. 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 Do we have a third one? Context. Good. Context, context, context. In other words, usage. How is a particular word used in a particular context? That's how you develop meanings of words, not in etymology. Etymology is sometimes helpful, and maybe it's helpful in this case. And if you break down hupakuo, you have a preposition hupo joined together with the word akuo. Apo generally has the meaning of under. And akuo is the basic Greek word that occurs, oh, I don't know, over 400 times, to hear. Just the idea of to hear. So putting those two together, in this case, I think it works. And the etymology may be a little bit helpful here. But even then, you need to check it with the context. In other words, how is hupakuo used in any specific context? And uh, the word is used 21 times in the New Testament. And in um, most places, it has a very specific translation. But using the etymology, it has the idea of to hear under, if you put the two together, hearing under or to hear submissively. It's like being under a slave master that is giving orders and you carry those orders out. That would be something of the imagery of the word. And the word is translated obey in uh, 20, at least in the New American Standard, in 20 of the usages in the New American Standard, simply obey. So it has this idea of submissively obeying or obeying uh, in terms of hearing instructions and carrying the instructions out. The word heed this is the only place in the New American Standard where the word hupakuo is translated as heed here in the Romans passage. So keep in mind the idea is obeying. And the idea of obeying is this idea of submissively responding, submissively believing. And in this context, it's used as a synonym for, for believing the good news. And in a sense, we obey it. Now, there's, there's a few New Testament passages. We won't take the time to look them up. 
where it talks about obeying the gospel, where the same word is used to obey the gospel. Now, it's not like a work, but it's obedience in the sense of responding with heartfelt belief, heartfelt response. So that's the first word that Paul is going to play on. Who has believed, and here's the context. In other words, you obey by believing. Who has believed our report? So the idea of believing Israel did not believe, did not heed, did not obey the gospel. And uh, the word report is essentially the idea of the message or the, the message or the content of the good news. And that's where we have kind of a play on words, the word that's translated report. You see the similarity between akuo and akoe. We have a verb form and a noun form. So we have kind of a related idea here, the faculty or act of hearing, akoe, that occurs 24 times in the New Testament, or it can specifically refer to the, the message that is heard. So the act or the faculty of hearing, particularly a message. And then hupakuo, see the play on words there? Israel did not believe that message, that gospel message, or New American Standard translates it, did not believe that report. So we have a little bit of a play on words, which is, which is pretty common in Paul, where he will take words that are related and similarly sounded, sounding, how do you say it? And he puts them together in the same context to add to the effect of what he's trying to communicate here. So Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed our report comes out of Isaiah 53 in the context of the broader gospel message that includes the death of the Messiah. And then verse 17 is something of a commentary, you might say, or an interpretation of what he's already said. And this would go back all the way to verse 14. And this is a very common verse. You've probably heard it. You, you probably memorize it. You've probably used it in evangelism. But remember, keep in mind the context. And the context is in terms of Israel. And Israel heard the message. They rejected it. But he's expounding here. Faith comes from hearing. Did they hear? Did Israel hear? Yep. They had the message in the first century. In fact, the early church was entirely Jewish, so many people responded. But in terms of corporately as a nation, the bulk of the Jewish people rejected that message. Faith comes from hearing. And uh, then we have the second part, hearing by the word of Christ. And I think there's a principle that we can draw here by way of application. How does faith come? Does faith come by some uh, mystical experience? Does faith come by meditating? Does faith come by simply contemplating, evaluating, thinking? No, he says faith comes from hearing. That's the why it's so important to deliver the message. And we've said several times, faith is not this nebulous 
faith in faith concept, but faith comes from the Word of God. Faith comes as a result of understanding, as a fa- as a as a result of knowing, as a as a result of a message. That's where you come to faith. I've got a quote from I think Barnhouse that I was going to put on a slide and I I didn't. If I can find it here. Yeah, Donald Gray Barnhouse says the following. I prayed for faith and thought someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. Now that's how some people think in terms of faith. Then he goes on, but faith did not come. One day I read Romans 10, 17, this passage here. I had closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study And faith has been growing ever since. So faith doesn't come through prayer. Faith doesn't come through some intuition or some insight. Or faith doesn't come from some uh, contemplation or meditation. Faith comes from understanding the word. Faith, we've said, has content. We believe something. We believe what the word has said. So it's kind of a general principle. So if you want to develop faith, you want to develop your understanding of the message. And as you read and you study the word, faith is a byproduct. Faith grows. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Got it? So beginning verse 18, now Paul is going to prove that uh, Israel has disbelieved, and not only in the first century, but he's going to take passages primarily, quotes out of the Old Testament, several of them, strings several of them together. And the purpose of this is to prove the disbelief of Israel. And they should not be surprised at what's going on in the first century, because God has predicted Israel's unbelief way back, and not only Israel's unbelief, But God has also predicted that he would, in fact, bring the Gentiles in to a relationship with himself. That's the thrust of verses 18 to the end of the chapter. So he begins in verse 18. Let's take a look at verse 18. But I say, surely they have not heard, have they? So he asks a question, kind of going back. In other words, maybe they didn't hear. Maybe there were some that uh, were isolated and didn't hear the good news of the one that brought it. Maybe they, maybe they didn't hear about the coming of the Messiah. Maybe maybe they missed out in some way. And that gives them some excuse, but he rejects that. And in fact, the way he phrases it, he phrases it in such a way that uh, the answer is, yes, they have heard. Surely have they never heard, have they? Well, no, the answer is yes, they have heard. And now he's going to begin this string of of quotations. Indeed, or in fact, or emphatically, yes, they have heard. The message has been delivered. The problem is not with the message. The, The problem is not with the preacher. The problem is not with the sending of the preacher. Notice he's kind of gathering together the context, verses 14 and 15. But in fact, they heard the message. The message penetrated. 
It was a broad message, and what he's going to do is introduce a passage that speaks of how broad this message went out, uh, not only in the Old Testament, but almost on a broad basis. But the interesting thing is the passage that he selects. Anyone uh, know where this passage comes from? And who can articulate? Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And what is the problem? Uh, That was Jeff? Yes, that was Jeff. Very good. Can you add to it? And uh, what's the problem of quoting this psalm here? Because it's not the Masoretic version that we have in our Bibles. It's the Septuagint version. Well, that no, that's not the real problem. That, that may be related, but there's a, a real problem. What does Psalm 19 say, particularly at the beginning? The first, remember, this, this is verse 4. And when it talks about their voice, part of the answer to my question here, what is are, the... Are you referring what, to the fact that this is general revelation? Yes, yes. Paul uses, when he says their voice, he's referring to verses 1 and 2, and actually 3. Remember what those verses say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament speaks of of God, etc. And he expands that in verses uh, 2 and 3. That's general revelation. The problem, general revelation is not adequate to bring salvation. Well, you can also link this to Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 for the yes. first couple. Yes, and what he says is general revelation, and if you remember four years ago or however many we were in chapter 1, that Romans 1 passage that Jeff is talking about is... All have heard. In other words, there is no one on the face of the earth that has not received a revelation from God because God has revealed himself through general revelation. But the point is everyone is accountable. There's there's none without excuse. But we also made the point that general revelation is not adequate for salvation. You need special revelation and the, the gospel message. And what Paul is doing is condemning the whole world in the Romans 1 passage. And I think what Paul is doing here by quoting this is emphasizing this universal aspect of the gospel. He's not saying that general revelation saves, but what he's saying is just like general revelation makes all men accountable such that there's none without excuse— so also in the first century, this, this, this is the context, the good news that has gone out, that has actually been heard, it's been delivered uh, clearly and accurately. I think he's using by way of analogy, and the first hint we have here, notice he doesn't quote it. He's not saying this is a fulfillment of Psalm 19.4, but I think he's kind of hinting that this is like Psalm 19.4, in that general revelation has gone out to every human being, so also in the first century, the gospel message has gone out into all the earth. And by the time of the book of Romans, Paul has already gone to most of the known world himself. And some of the others, there's some traditions that some have already gone as far as the ends of the earth in Spain. 
by the time the book of Romans has been written, remember Paul had a desire to visit Spain. He mentions that in the book of Romans. So the gospel has already gone out into the, you might say, the whole earth in terms of the inhabited and known world and their words to the ends of the world. Oh, I was going to show the next slide here. Their voice has gone out. Uh, so Psalm 19.4 is this universal, uh, in, the, in the context, Paul is referring to the universal gospel, but Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, where verse 4 is contained, is general revelation. But you also have, I think what he's doing is reminding the audience that you also have special revelation in Psalm 19, that's verses 7 through 14. And that special revelation is the word of God. In fact, we have one of the strongest statements on inerrancy uh, beginning in uh, verse 7 all the way through verse 10. But that's special revelation. And I think he's using this by way of analogy. But Israel did not respond. You got that? So we can develop another principle. Remember, we've used this slide to emphasize human responsibility, the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. And Israel has failed in uh, their human responsibility, failure in terms of pursuing righteousness. That's the end of chapter 9. Failure to know not only the perfections of God, but God himself. That's chapter 10, verses 2 through 3. Another principle we saw that Israel, in their responsibility, failed to realize the purpose of the law, that it pointed to Christ. Christ is the end of the law. I'm using P's here to alliterate. Failure in pursuit, failure to know perfections, failure to realize purpose. So we also have a failure to apply the priority of faith, 6 through 10, they desired self-righteousness rather than faith. And we saw last time failure to accept the plentitude of God's plan that included Gentiles. In other words, it was extensive to the extent of including Gentiles, P, plentitude. And now failure to understand the prophecies of Scripture, 14 through 21. And we have one of the first ones uh, in verse 18, although you could go all the way back to verse 14 as well. So he's going to prove their unbelief that all of this is predicted. All of this is in the word of God. So he's going to start with the proof from the law. And this is uh, probably a good place for us to, to stop today. Let me just uh, introduce it. And then we'll begin in verse 19 next, next week. So did they hear? Surely they have never heard, have they? Well, they have heard. And then he says, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? So he asks another question going back. You know, they have to know, they have to hear, they have to know, they have to comprehend it. And he's going to support the idea. Not only did they hear and not only do they know, but he's going to say, indeed, they have and and then he's going to quote a passage. The next portion is the Deuteronomy passage. So he's going to take them back to Deuteronomy 32. And this is his farewell address to Israel. And again, he's looking ahead, 
But remember the context. This is even before they're a nation, even before they enter the land. And Deuteronomy is preparing the nation of Israel for entering into the land. And even way back then, God predicts what happened in the first century. So that gives you a little bit of an introduction there. And what he's talking about here, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. What's the not a nation? That would be us. That'd be us goyim, Gen- us Gentiles. Gentiles. Yep. And we'll develop that next time. So even before Israel is a full-fledged nation with the land in the book of Joshua, in the book of Deuteronomy, God already predicts that he's going to incorporate people outside of the nation of Israel that are not a nation. In other words, not a chosen nation, not a people of God. He's going to extend his reach to the the Gentiles. So that goes way back. That's the whole point that he's making here, why God is righteous in bringing in the Gentiles, why God is righteous in setting aside, on a temporary basis, the nation of Israel. So let's stop there. Who wants to close for us? Anyone want to close in prayer? Don't be shy. Dave, since you started and since you somewhat opened for us, do you mind uh, closing for us? I don't mind. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. You are almighty and that we can rest all of our hopes, all of our plans at the foot of the cross and surrender everything to you because without that we have nothing. Just empty shells that you have formed out of the dust and breathed life into the life of your spirit now that we were dead and now we're alive through you. Just praise you and thank you for that fact that that you are everything and that we have nothing without you. We just commit all of our efforts to the cross, at the foot of the cross, and lay all of our dealings down and, and say, thy will be done, Lord, not mine. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This closing thought and closing application actually relates to that verse 19 passage. In other words, God is going to use Gentiles to bring jealousy to his people. They're going to see God working in the Gentiles, and that should uh, awaken them. And um, that should bring home to us. We can reach Jewish people, or I say you can, but we can, by living a visible Christian life such that the unbelieving Jew, Jewish people see a difference, see something. They have a history of anti-Semitism that has come from the church. That is a huge barrier to Jewish people. To hear a message from a Gentile, and particularly a Christian, can be offensive. So if they see a visible, active God working in the Christian life, then they might ask questions and we can give a verbal witness next. Any comments before we shut this thing down? Clear? Ray, it's Denise. Go ahead. I believe the worst form of anti-Semitism is to withhold the Messiah that died for them. 
Spiritually, that is true. I think that is that's a good comment. Very good. So it should encourage us to be praying for any Jewish people you may know. And I know a few Jewish people. I try to take advantage of every opportunity to live the life before them, hoping someday I may be able to verbally share the gospel. David's going to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself. David Wellums. Let's go ahead, Dave. Well, I don't know what all y'all want to know, but I can tell you that I'm an import um, from California. My family, my family immigrated from Russia, Russia and Germany, came over as a group of Mennonites. I'm familiar with the Mennonites. Settled in Kansas and eventually became farmers in the California Valley, Central Valley. So I was raised in the Mennonite church from a very young age in a community of Mennonite believers. Good Bereans, if you can, uh, if you can imagine that. My, uh, I think my, my first recollection of walking down the aisle and accepting Jesus as I was about nine, I was at a Billy Graham crusade, I believe, in Central California when that happened. And I uh, didn't really understand it at the time, uh, what I was doing, except I knew that I was being called to understand about the personal relationship with, uh, with Jesus as my Savior and the Holy Spirit as my leader and guide, basically. And uh, that didn't come until mid-teens or so. And I, I went on, joined teen missions and went on a mission trip to Ireland and Scotland. We built... Uh, walls for churches, which I did again later in life, and I uh, just recently, in the last 10 years, went to Kiev, or Kiev, however you want to pronounce it, and did the same thing in uh, for a couple of weeks with a small group of people um, for churches there. They were having a church service in a tent and had been meeting at a tent for five years, which, as you can imagine, is, is uh, quite the problem especially with the amount of rain that they get over there. It's amazing. Um, I was living in California, and 2008 hit and really destroyed everything that was going on in my life as far as losing a house and um, a marriage, a long-term marriage was just dissolved through that time. And I uh, was single in living in Colorado Springs and started dating online. And I met this beautiful, beautiful woman from Albuquerque. And who had also just happened to be on that same site at that same time. It's the only time I'd ever been on anything, done anything like that. And Marlene and I started dating long distance. Mm. So if you all know Marlene, she's uh, my fabulous wife singer who is uh, amazing, has an amazing talent and God-given musical ability. So we, uh, we started dating long distance, and then eventually I moved down to Albuquerque, and we married and have been married six years now. And uh, we were at Grace and started a Grace class at Grace together and moved on to Hoffmantown after a certain time and uh, have been uh, actively, actively seeking God's will and His face in this time together. And that's about all I have to share. I hope that didn't take anybody by surprise. If you have any other questions, just ask. You went to Israel with us two times. Yes, I did. Twice. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for that reminder. I don't want to forget that's important. Among my many other mission trips, <laughs> although that was more sightseeing. Great. 
Any questions? I do have a question for David. David? Yes, ma'am. What can we pray for you about? Well, we've both been deemed essential workers, so uh, I think the big thing for us is that we've both been extremely busy. Uh, Me, they give me as many hours as I can handle, and and then more. I think I pulled 50 hours last week just because they need drivers and delivery people and people who want to work rather than, you know, sit home on that $600 a week unemployment thing. And I'd rather work. So uh, I get a lot of hours. So if you want to pray for anything, pray for strength. Thank you. Good. Very good. Any final goodbyes before we depart? See you later. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Bye. 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 See you all. (laughs) (laughs) See you all. Have a good week. God bless you, Ray. Thank you.